All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We are in Matthew chapter 16. When you get it, say, got it. All right. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you one. If you have a Bible, make sure you bring that on Sundays or at least a phone that has the Bible app. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 24 through 26 today. Uh, Last week, Sean taught verses 18 through 28. I'm sorry, 13 through 28. And uh, he briefly got to touch on these verses, but he wasn't able to dig into these couple of verses because we didn't have time to do that, and we didn't want him to preach for an hour and a half. And so he just got to touch the surface of them. But this week we kind of called an audible. Um, the preaching team called an audible and said, hey, let's, let's dig in a little bit deeper on these verses, verses 24 through 26. So Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. I'm reading from the NASB. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? These are the words of Jesus for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, these are kind of heavy words that you said here to your disciples. And you kind of lay this, this path out, this path to true discipleship. And Lord, we need grace to hear and to respond to these words. And I need grace to communicate properly what it seems like you were saying to them and to us. So we ask for that this morning. We ask that you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit of God says to this part of your church at Reality Ventura. And that you would give us grace to not just look in the mirror and see the Word of God and it looks back and shows us who we are and then we turn away. But rather that we we look and say, oh, okay, I want to respond to what I am seeing as God's Word is presented here. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't have any cute, like, introduction or way to, like, warm up to this. Jesus just kind of, like, digs right in. And so I'm just going to dig right in. Um, You guys okay with that? All right. So he says here, right, deny yourselves. Take up your cross. Follow me. It's some pretty heavy language. You want to find your life? He says, give it up. You try to save your life, you're probably going to lose it. This morning, we're going to talk a bit about the path to being a true disciple of Christ. And when I say disciple, I'm referring to those who have chosen to follow Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And today, we're going to look at the path to true discipleship. And specifically, as it pertains to Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, what is required for true discipleship and what are the potential threats to true discipleship. We are here today, all of us, because we're following Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, or maybe you're just checking it out or whatever. We want to be, we are disciples. Lord, we want to follow you. So what then is required for true discipleship, and what are, we should know, what are the potential threats to true discipleship? The title of the sermon is, Dying is the New Living, like orange is the new black. Dying is the new living. 
So what is required for true discipleship? Surrender and death is what we see here. Requirement number one, surrender. In verse 24, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself. Now, what Jesus is not talking about is self-denial. Self-denial is not the path to true discipleship. Jesus is talking about surrender. Surrender is the path to true discipleship. Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It is a denying of self in order to give oneself over to following Jesus. It is not just a surrender of yourself, but a surrender of yourself to Jesus. Surrender. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, first of all, denying ourselves means that we surrender our desires. Following Jesus means that we surrender our desires, namely our wants, our felt needs, and our plans. It means surrendering our wants. And when I say surrender, I don't, I don't mean that we stop feeling or that we stop wanting or thinking. And I don't mean that we become uh, like an obedient robot disconnected from this process of following Jesus or some lifeless tool in the hands of God. When I say surrender, I'm referring to priority and sovereignty. I'm referring to priority and sovereignty. To surrender means that my desires take a back seat to God's desires. His desires take priority and his desires have sovereignty over mine. Surrender means that I am willing to give up what I want in order to follow Jesus. Will he always call me to give up what I want? No. Is everything that I want automatically not what he wants? No. But is everything that I want always what he wants? No, probably not. And that then is where surrender comes into play. And I think it's noteworthy that this isn't just a surrender like one time. Like, I started following Jesus and I surrendered my life to him. That was it. And everything's always going to be cool. I'm always going to live in this place of surrender. No, it is a daily, ongoing thing. In Luke's parallel account of Matthew 16, he includes a little detail that Matthew doesn't include. In Luke 9, he writes that Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I had to do this this morning. I had to do this this morning. I, I woke up this morning and had to surrender certain things to God. And this afternoon, those things are going to come up and they're going to try to like reign over my mind and heart again. And I'm going to have to surrender those things again. It is an ongoing surrender as we endeavor to follow Jesus. It is an, a continual submitting of our wills to his will. And following Jesus means that we surrender our felt needs. In other words, following Jesus means that we surrender what we feel and think we need. Because you know how it is. You're like, Lord, I need. And, and we do sometimes. Like, Lord, I need such and such amount of money. Lord, I need a job. Lord, I need more sleep. I need energy. Lord, I need to be healed. Lord, I need a wife. Lord, I need a husband. Lord, I need, I got a wife. He said me too. He said, Lord, I need, right? And Jesus, Jesus would say to us, like he did to the masses on that day, your heavenly father knows what you need. 
before you even ask. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. True discipleship, truly following Jesus, means that we surrender what we think or feel we need to the God who already meets all of our needs. Following Jesus also means that we surrender our plans. We're taught from the youngest age to plan, right? What is, what's one of the most, or one of the first intelligent questions we ask a child? We say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the plan is implied there in the question. In other words, kid, if you don't have an answer, dude, you better come up with something. You've got to have a plan, right? And so we do. We plan our lives. We've got eating plans. We've got exercise plans. We've got work plans. We've got retirement plans. We even have Bible reading plans. We plan our lives. But the question is, what is, what is God's plan? What are God's plans? And for your life, for my life, what are God's plans? And are those plans maybe different than the ones that we have? Following Jesus means that we surrender our plans to God's plans. And not just what our plans are, but also our plan for how we plan for the plan to pan out. Right? And in the timing that we planned for the plan to pan out. Remember, often with God, the journey is just as important as the destination. And sometimes even the journey is the destination. Hashtag trust the process. <laughs> Proverbs 16.9 says that our hearts choose our path, but the Lord will direct our steps. If we'll let him, he will. He will direct our steps if we'll let him, but you got to let him drive. You got to let Jesus dive. And not just because we're at the end of our rope and can't drive anymore, but because that's just what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means that you let him drive. But he's not going to make you do it. He's not going to force you to let him drive. If you resist, he's he's probably going to let you drive. He might even let you crash. It is a choice that he gives us. That's why Jesus puts the action on the follower here in verse 24, right? He says, if you want to follow me, then you deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. Jesus isn't going to force this on us. You have to choose to follow him. You have to choose to let him drive. You have to choose to let go. But what's crazy is when you do, it's actually better. He's actually a better driver. And no one knows you better than he does. No one knows what you need better than he does. And no one is better equipped to lead your life than he is. And denying ourselves in order to follow Jesus also means that we surrender our rights. That is, surrendering what we think we deserve, what we think we are entitled to. This is a big one, man, and, and a hard one. This idea of entitlement. The Oxford Dictionary defines entitlement as the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. For example... I work hard, or I, I've been at this job for such and such amount of time, and so I deserve, what, fill in the blank. Or because I am your, fill in the blank. Because I am your dad, 
your son, your sibling, your spouse, your employee, your boss. Because I am, because I do, because I am doing, fill in the blank. I deserve, fill in the blank, respect, love, to be compensated fairly. Whatever it is, because I am, I deserve. It is the belief that someone is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. Entitlement. Man, this is hard. This is a hard one, but you know what? If anyone should have been entitled, it was Jesus. If anyone... If anyone should have been entitled, it was Jesus. After all, if anyone deserved special treatment, it was Jesus. If anyone deserved to be treated fairly, honored, respected, it was him. If anyone had the right to assert their authority and position, it was Jesus. But do you know what the Bible says about Jesus as it pertains to his entitlement to all these things? In Philippians 2, Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here it is. Here's his mindset toward this entitlement issue. Who, being in the very nature God, that was his fill in the blank. Because I am, right, God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, perfect, spotless, healer of mankind, freedom fighter, merciful, compassionate, gracious, kind, savior of the world, Jesus, gave up his rights to everything that he might have deserved. So then, follower of Jesus, following Jesus means that we follow him in this, and like him, we take the way of the cross and surrender our rights. I just want to say something to the husbands in, in the room, especially those of you who have been married more than just a couple of years. Just to be honest, man, some, some of you guys are just, really entitled. Some of you act really entitled. You know, you work hard. Maybe you bring home the bigger paycheck. Maybe you think you work harder. Maybe you do. And so you think, I deserve fill in the blank. And maybe you do. But this isn't about what we deserve. Jesus didn't deserve death. Jesus deserved a crown. And yet, he took a cross. And he did it, listen, he did it because he wanted to give us life. That's why he did it, in order to give, to give us life. And I don't know about you, man, but I want to bring life to my wife. Don't you want to bring life to your wife? And even if it's for selfish reasons, bring life to your wife. Happy wife, happy life. People ask all the time, what does it mean to be a man? What, what makes you a man? Is it, is it hard work? Good work ethic? Is it faithfulness? Good character? What about integrity? Honor? Having the respect of others? Is it status? 
success, maybe position? What about being able to fix stuff or build things? Is that what makes a man? Is that what a man is? Those are great things, but no, that's not what a man is. A man, listen, it's not the answer you're expecting. A man is someone who causes flourishing. What, you're going to make me sound like a gardener? Someone who causes flourishing. And you know how I know that? Because that was the job that God gave Adam, the man, in the beginning. He said, cultivate the land. Till, plant, water, prune. Make things flourish. You want to know what our primary purpose as men is? To cause things to flourish. And so husbands, you start at home base. And you ask yourself the question, am I causing flourishing in my wife? Am I speaking, acting in such a way that is causing my wife to blossom? Are my actions causing her to blossom into more of who God has made her to be? If so, if so then yeah, we're acting like men. But I would say that probably most of us aren't doing this. Or if we are, we're doing it accidentally and just kind of getting lucky. But that's all right, man. I'm not here to condemn anybody. We... Man, we, could, we're looked at, we look in the mirror. We say, oh, wow, that's what I look like. I want to, I need to fix some things maybe, right? And we can adjust. And the, the marching order that we have right now is cause flourishing in your wife. How? I don't know. But I bet you she does. For me, that means providing space in my wife's life for her to be who God has called her to be. And so I, I give her space to work a job that she loves, that brings her life. I create space for her to, to spend time with her friends who fill her cup up. But for you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. But I bet you, if you asked your wife, you spent a little time and asked your wife, that she'd have an answer. She might even have a list for you of what that means to cause flourishing. And wives, somehow y'all are just acting entitled too. Especially some of the moms in here. You know, you're like, dude, I work my butt off. I am tired. I don't get a nine to five. I'm like seven to 11. And I don't get financially compensated. And it is this thankless job. I don't ever feel like I can get ahead. I feel like I'm always one dirty load of laundry behind. I'm always one dirty bathroom behind. And on top of that, I've been wearing my yoga pants for the last month. I don't deserve such and such. I deserve fill in the blank. But to follow Jesus means that we deny ourselves like he did and surrender our rights to what we think or feel we deserve. So that's the first requirement for being a true disciple, surrender. Requirement number one, surrender. That is surrendering our desires our, 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 our wants, our felt needs, our plans, and our rights. The second thing that is required for true discipleship is death. I tried to come up with something cuter than death. But, dude, Jesus doesn't mix, mince words here. He just, he just says it like he is in verse 24. He's like, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. 2,000 years ago, the cross only meant one thing. Sean talked about it last week uh, for a second. That to us, like the cross has kind of lost some of its like sting, right? Like it's become an ornament that we wear around our necks or a thing that we have up in a picture of in our house or a tattoo of on our body. But it was as if somebody said uh, the electric chair. Like that only means one thing to you, right? And the cross only meant one thing to them 2,000 years ago. It meant death. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about here. And that's how we need to read it. When we read, take up your cross, when we read the cross, we need to read it as death. Jesus is saying death. He's talking about death when he says take up your cross. He's saying if you want to come after me, you're going to have to die. It's important for us to to remember the context to which Jesus was saying these things, in which Jesus was saying these things, right? Whenever you read the Bible, you always want to remember the, the time period, the people that he was talking to. And this time was a hostile time in Israel. Jesus was flipping the entire system on its head, and people were not happy about it. And so to follow Jesus literally meant that you might die. And honestly, in a lot of places around the world, that is still the case. To follow Jesus might mean death. It was not popular then. And even in the U.S., where people aren't dying for their faith, It is still not popular to follow Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, the world hated me, and it's probably going to hate you. The world persecuted me, and it will persecute you. The reality is following Jesus is going to involve some crossly elements. It's probably going to involve some kind of shame. It's most likely going to mean some kind of persecution. It might mean death. It'll probably for sure mean some kind of suffering. I don't fully grasp the mystery of it, but it just seems that there is something about following Jesus that involves suffering. And Jesus is saying here to his disciples and in turn to us, hey, I am the Savior of the world. And if you follow me, you will actually have real abundant life. But for the record, this road to true discipleship and following me is not roses and rainbows. This is a, there was a cross to bear on this road, and the cross always means death. And listen, if somebody told you, come to Jesus, and he's going to make everything better, they didn't read their Bible. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're dead inside, and Jesus wants to make you alive. The gospel is in this world, you're going to have trouble It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. In this world, you will have trouble. But the gospel is, Jesus has overcome the world. That's the good news. That's the good news, that Jesus has overcome the world. And taking up your cross also means death in that it is a dying to sin. It also means death in that it is a dying to sin. Paul says it perfectly in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified. With Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And then when he says it in Romans 6, he says, We are no longer slaves of sin. To pick up our cross and follow Jesus means that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, say no to our old sinful desires and no to the temptation to do sinful things. It is a dying to those things, it is a, a death to those things. Our counselor who um, really helped us walk through the last couple of years of our life, would say it like 
Taking up your cross means dying to the broken things. God created us to be whole, and through the fall, things broke. And when we live for the broken things, we bring that brokenness into our lives. And so death means dying to those things, dying to the broken things in our life, because God has more than that for us. So a little recap here. The requirements for true discipleship. Number one, surrender. Number two, death. You want to follow Jesus, then denying yourself means that you give up control and you surrender your desires. And it means that you take up your cross. That is, you be willing to give it all up for Jesus. Now, that is what Jesus did mean here. That is what... uh, Following Jesus, denying ourself does mean. But what does denying yourself and taking up your cross not mean? It does not mean that we lose who we are in the process. When I say surrender your desires and give it all up, what some of you hear is kill your desires and give who you are up. This is a subtle but important distinction here, right? Because one says who you are is wrong and worthy of death. And the other one says who you are is valuable and worthy of life. Taking up the cross does not mean that you bury who God has made you to be. Denying self does not mean that we die to our personalities, our giftings, or the things that we love to do. Those are part of who God made you to be. Those are part of who God made you to be. Denying self does also not mean that we die to our right to have an opinion or our desire to have mutual respect in a relationship. Does it mean that we hold our desires and opinions with an open hand? Always ready and willing to surrender them? Yeah, absolutely. But the way of the cross doesn't mean that we automatically just die to everything we are. Do we die to our sinful desires, our sinful nature? Yes. Do we give our whole and complete lives over to Jesus? Yes. But who you are shouldn't die when you come to Jesus. Who you are, listen, who you are is redeemed when you come to Jesus. Our sin nature dies, yes. The old man is dead. But being crucified with Christ is not talking about your personality or giftings or the fact that you love to dance or hike or you love to crunch numbers or surf or fix things dying. It's talking about our sin nature dying. Psalm 139 says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That God went to great lengths to make you the way that he made you. And when he saved you, listen to me, he did not save you from that. He saved you to a fuller version of that. And it is a shame for us to teach or think otherwise. God made you the way that he made you for a reason. Let me give you a silly example. Since I was nine years old, I have loved reggae music. I don't know why I grew up in like a suburban Greek-Italian family. I've always loved reggae, and I've always loved dreads. And when I started following Jesus, I didn't say, oh, that's all, like, that's, that's who I was. Everything about me is bad. Like, that's who God made me, and so he just redeemed it. He just redeemed it. And you know what? God has used something as silly as a genre of music and a hairstyle, literally, to open doors for me across the world and give me 
like platforms and a voice with people, literally. My hair has given me a voice with people who would never listen to me if I wasn't wearing dreads. Straight up, like people who refuse and are hostile to what they'd call the bald head Christian. All of a sudden, say, hey, Mr. Bally, come in. We want to hear about this Jesus that you speak of. Because of a music that I play and a hairstyle I wear, that's who I am. That's who God made me. I love reggae music. And he redeemed that. He redeemed that and used it for his glory. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who, God, who did God make you to be? He wants to redeem that and use that for his glory. Now, this doesn't give us a license to not become more like Jesus in who we are. And this doesn't mean that you shouldn't still live in a place of surrendering all of you to Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we don't still compromise our wills or still prefer others above ourselves. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect and that you don't need to change or grow. And it doesn't mean that you haven't picked up some really bad habits along the way and used who God made you for your own selfish gain or even for evil. But it does mean that the core of who you are is not worthy of death just because it's you. Again, Who you are shouldn't die when you come to Jesus, but rather who you are is redeemed when you come to Jesus. The way of the cross is the way of Jesus, right? He is our example. But, and Jesus did, he did come to to serve. But Jesus didn't serve others by cowering to everyone else's requests. He didn't become weak, so others could have power, but rather he became meek so others could be empowered. Meekness, it is power under constraint. That's what Jesus did. And so it is not this idea of timid, like, oh, all right, I'm just denying myself. I'm going to die to myself. I'm just, whatever you want. I'm just going to let you and your opinions and everything that you want walk all over me. It's not even about that. It's not about denying myself and giving over to someone else's way. It's about all of us denying ourselves in order to give ourselves over to God's way. And God's way is all of us laying down our lives for one another. That's why when Paul is instructing the Ephesian church in how to do relationships, how to relate to one another, husbands to wives, kids to parents, he says in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Listen, some of you guys are in relationships where the other party has been dying and dying and dying and you've been living and living and living. And it might not even be your fault. You might not even be aware that it's happening. But that is not a relationship. That's just death. That's just lopsided death. Godly relationships aren't a one-sided denial of self. A godly relationship means mutually following the way of Jesus in mutually laying down our lives and rights for one another. So those are the requirements for following Jesus. But let's take the last 10 minutes here to talk about the potential threats to following Jesus. What are the potential threats to true discipleship? Jesus goes on to say in verses 25 and 26, whoever wishes to save his life, threat number one, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
this threat. Number Number two, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Potential threats, two things. Self-preservation and the pursuit of the world. Potential threat number one, self-preservation. He says in verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Man, we live in a culture that says save yourself, right? We create cars and microwaves and iPhones to try to save us time. We create Windmills and solar panels and Teslas to try to save us energy, right? We are a culture who tries to save stuff. We create burglar alarms to try to save us from danger. We create helmets and back braces and knee pads to try to save us from injury. We even create supplements and organic food to try to save us from disease. We are programmed to save ourselves. And not just as a culture, it is As a race, as a race, as a human race, we are programmed to save ourselves. It is an innate instinct, survival. And I suppose that some of that is probably fine and just good stewardship of what God has given us. And so we ought to. But there can come a point when us working to save our lives will actually prevent us from true discipleship, from fully following Jesus Guys, there can come a point where this can prevent us from truly following Jesus. Let me give you an example. Culture says, protect yourself and your family from danger. But Jesus says, go unto all the world, that video, right? Making disciples of every nation. Wait, hold up. Like every nation? Like, what about the ones that are hostile to outside, like, people? And what about the ones that are hostile to Christians? What about the ones that kill Christians? Yeah. Yeah, those nations too. But what if God calls you there? What if he's calling you there? What if God is calling you and your family to go where the good news of Jesus has not yet been heard? Will you go? What if it means that you and your family's life will be in danger? Will you still go? See the rub? See the rub here? What is the priority? Is it following Jesus or is it saving your life? Is the priority building the kingdom of God or is it protecting the kingdom that you've created for yourself? For whoever wishes to save his life, Jesus said, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying that it's possible that some of us are so concerned with our lives that in turn we're actually losing them. And I get it, man. It's a wrestle. We live in America, right? Our whole society pushes against what Jesus is saying. But guys, some of us this morning are so concerned with protecting and controlling our lives that we're actually missing what God has for us. Some of us are so concerned with protecting our lives and saving our lives that we're actually missing. We're missing it all. We're missing the whole deal. We're missing what God actually has for us. Here's another just simple example. Culture says provide comfort and security for yourself. But what if Jesus calls you to do something that's uncomfortable? 
and doesn't make sense? What if he calls you to quit your job where you're making great money and providing a really comfortable lifestyle for you or your family? Are you willing to be uncomfortable in order to obey and follow Jesus? And I'm preaching to myself here, man. I'm preaching to myself. It is ingrained in us to try to save our lives, to try to protect what we have. And we get to the point where it's just like in us. It's just like part of who we are. We're programmed to live, think, and feel like this. It becomes second nature and it becomes the lens through which we view everything. We don't even think about it anymore. And yet it drives every decision we make. The neighborhoods that we choose to to live in. The job offers that we accept or turn down. The schools that we put our kids in. The activities we prioritize. All of it. We may not admit it, but for many of us, comfort and security have become our functional savior. Instead of God, his plan, and his glory driving us, the need for comfort and security is driving us. But listen, that's not living. That's not the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. Jesus didn't come to make us safe and comfortable. Jesus came to make us alive. And he's saying here that the way to truly be made alive is by dying to the lesser things. The way up is down. Dying is the new living. What you're talking about is the American dream. But Jesus didn't come, live, die on a cross, raise from the dead, and save you from white picket fences private schools, and more money in the bank. I'm not saying those things are wrong to have, but to assume that that is always the will of God for our lives is wrong. He's out for our best good. And our best good is us being conformed into the image of Christ. And yet sometimes we create some other image of of what his, his good for our lives is. But God says, I'm out for your best good, and your best good is you being conformed into the image of Christ. Not us being conformed into whatever our, our Pinterest page looks like or whatever a, a version of a, a, we daydreamed a good life to look like. Sometimes him conforming us into the image of Christ might actually mean us going without a whole lot of money or us moving into that hard neighborhood. Or our kids being salt and light in the public school system. Or taking that other job because that's where God wants us to be. Or moving to that other city or that other state because that's where God wants us to be. Or staying in California even though it's virtually impossible to live here because it's so freaking expensive. You know what blows my mind though? Is God's upside down economy. Because you know what happens as a result of all of this not saving your life? as a result of all of this giving up and surrendering, you know what happens as a result of that? We actually find our life. Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The second potential threat, just three minutes here, to true discipleship is the pursuit of the world. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world And forfeits his soul. Now what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus says in verse 26. Let me be clear here. The world is not the threat. The threat is in the pursuit of the world. 
The threat is in the exchange here. Are you giving up your eternal soul for something temporal? Jesus is saying some people will give away their lives, will give away their eternal destiny in exchange for the pursuit of wealth, success, even great causes. Some people will give away their entire lives for great causes, power, position. Some people will give away their lives for security and comfort. Some people today in this room are literally giving away their lives, giving away your lives in the pursuit of the world. You know, we always talk about the cost of following Jesus, but Jesus is saying there's also a cost in choosing to not follow him and instead pursue the world. The cost of not following him is the soul. That's what Jesus is saying here. So is it wrong to want to protect your family or keep them from danger? Is it wrong to, wrong to make money or have possessions? No. What's wrong is the prioritizing of the pursuit of those things above the call of God. These things are not a threat to true discipleship in and of themselves. They become a threat when they go from being just a thing in our lives to becoming the ultimate thing in our lives. They become a threat when the pursuit of them goes from being a part of our lives to being the driving force by which we live our lives. And the irony of these verses is that the more you live for yourself, the more miserable you will actually be. But the more you say, Lord, I'm going to live for you utterly and completely, the more satisfied you will actually be and the more abundant your life will actually be both now and forever. You want to know what it means to be a true disciple, to truly follow Jesus? It means that we surrender all of this. It means that we be willing to give it all up. It means not prioritizing the saving of our lives and the pursuit of our kingdoms over the call and glory of God. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen right here. Um, I want us to consider these things. So if you have a, something that takes pictures, take a picture of this. Or if you can type quickly with your fingers, write these down, please. I'm going to ask the band to come up also. And I want to read these with, with you guys here. There's just some questions for us to contemplate. Number one. Is there a desire or plan that I need to surrender? If so, what is it? Number two, what are the broken things in my life that I'm living for? And what am I going to do about it? Number three, is there some part of who God made me to be that I buried when I started following Jesus that maybe he actually wants to redeem? Number four, what is driving me? Is it God's purpose, plan, and glory? Or is it my plan, comfort, and security? Number five, am I giving away my life in pursuit of something other than Jesus? If so, what is it? Guys, this morning, we've looked at a mirror, right? The Word of God is a mirror. We've looked at a mirror and we've said, oh, wow, that's... That's who I am. Don't be the person who turns around and forgets what kind of person was in the mirror. This is gnarly words from Jesus here, right? But at least you can say this, okay? At least you can say this this morning. Lord, this is heavy. 
I don't really know if I want to surrender everything because that scares the heck out of me. I don't know what you're going to call me to do or call me to give up. That's scary. But you can at least say this. You can at least say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And I realize that your way is the best. I get that. I realize that dying is actually living. I realize that surrender is where the actual freedom is. I realize all those things cerebrally. But Lord, it's hard. It's hard. Please help me. Bare minimum, you can say that. So don't just leave this morning. As we sing these songs, let's come to God in an attitude of surrender. Lord, would you help us? Lord, we ask that you would help us. I, I need help, Lord. I need help to realize that you are better. To realize that you deserve it all and that you're better. Help us, Lord. And I want to ask for those that maybe you're speaking to in this room, people in this room know a specific thing. They, they read these questions and it was like, oh, that, I know the answer to that. Whether I want to acknowledge it or not, I know the answer to that thing. Lord, give them grace and faith to do something about it. I would encourage you, church, to, to not just leave right now. We, we do this second set of worship to respond to the word of God. And I would encourage you also at some point during this, this set of music here that you take a physical posture of surrender before God. Maybe that means you getting on your knees and you're, where you're seated or coming up to these carpets and maybe getting on your face, getting on your knees, or maybe it just means opening up your hands in a position of surrender. I would encourage you to take a physical posture of surrender because often when we take a physical posture, our hearts and our minds follow. The prayer team is on the right and the left. They would love to pray with you. They are available to pray with you. There's going to be a couple people on both sides of the stage. You can even just come to them and say, I just need help. Just pray for me. Or you could say, man, I, there's this thing in my life. I need to surrender. They would love to, to help and pray for you in any way they can. And Lastly, the communion elements are up front here. As you take that bread, you remember the body of Christ that was broken. You take that cup, you remember the blood of Christ that was spilled. The one who emptied himself, who wasn't, he didn't take his rights to entitlement. He gave it all up so that we could have life. Whatever it is, however we respond, let's, let's respond now.